Grace Pod is a ministry of Grace Church Greenwich. For more resources to help you get to know God better through His Word, including bite-sized theology and answers to big questions, do check out www.greenwich.church. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Grace Pod, and today we're looking at one of the most famous episodes in Exodus, and in fact in the whole Bible, the salvation of God's people through the death of a lamb in their place, so Passover night. Um, Andrew, tell us, we've been looking at all of the plagues, the first nine, what is different about plague number 10? Yeah, so all the plagues have a sort of God promises something, it's going to be frogs this time or whatever it is, and then the thing happens, frogs happen, Um, and what is different here is we get a little pause between the God promises it and it happens and two particular things spring out that are different in the tenth plague one is they've actually got to do something you know get lamb's blood on the doorpost and the other is um, there's kind of a genre change where there's an institution of a festival so this isn't just a one night affair you know when they uh, the angel of death um, uh, turns up not that not the other kind of affair um, but this is something to be memorialised and remembered for every generation. So in those ways, it's it's a bit different. And the fact they've got to do something is striking because, when I say striking, so we keep doing an accidental pun today, striking. It is a striking on the Egyptians, but it's also striking for us in that um, automatically God's people escape from some of the previous plagues. So the plague of hail, you can escape it by... Um, hearing God's word and taking his warning seriously and getting your animals inside. But the Israelites don't have to do anything because hailstones don't fall at all in Goshen in the concentration camp. Or the plague of darkness, it isn't dark in Goshen. I like to imagine that there's this sort of line, there's a barrier. As you walk out of Goshen, suddenly it becomes pitch black. And as you walk into Goshen, it's like the fog clears and it's it's really light. So um, the plague of darkness, I think the plague of flies even, the flies fly in a special flight path where they avoid Goshen so and we keep being told again and again this is so that you'll know that the the Lord makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt so plagues are against enemies or against Egypt they're not against friends they're not against Israel but this last one is against friends and enemies it seems unless you do something I mean why would God be sending a plague even on his friends it is strange and and it's it's clearly not, I mean, you've ruled out the idea that God is unable to send precision guided plagues because he's, he's very good at it when he wants to. But there's a message here, which is that we, I guess all of us tend to divide the world into goodies and baddies. Um, there's the baddies over there and that we're the goodies. And there's those who don't deserve judgment, us and those who do over there. And this is a, a big uh, kind of, Um, announcement that the world doesn't actually work that way the two groups are actually baddies and baddies it's people who deserve God's judgment and people who deserve God's judgment and the only distinction is will we shelter under the blood of the lamb and that is proclaimed very loud and clear and actually in Exodus we've seen um, there's not just um, that Pharaoh's an idolater but we've actually seen that God's own people don't really know him um, they don't know his name at the beginning. They they need to get to the point where in chapter 15 they say you are um, the one true God. Um, so they're, they're just as much um, given to idolatry, idolatry as the uh, Egyptians are. So here's a plague and it's coming on everyone because God's anger is against all sinners, which includes the Israelites. But they can escape from this plague 
by the death of a lamb and by the blood painted on their doorposts. Now, evangelicals um, typically have seen this as a picture of penal substitution. So it just means a punishment swap where the punishment that should have fallen on the firstborn son instead falls on the lamb. And so the lamb is punished in our place as a substitute. And you know that's a wonderful picture of what the Lord Jesus comes to do as he um, is pierced for our transgressions and bears our sins in his body on the tree and, and so on. But um, others have said, oh no, you're too quick to read penal substitution into this. Um, it's not really about a punishment swap at all. It's just God labelling his people with the lamb's blood. And what would you say back to that? Well, I mean, you could add some as well, but I'll start us off. I think there's... Um a few reasons why that doesn't work one is that it's a weird label so i mean of all the labels you could put uh, to mark out an israelite why use blood and and blood in the bible always um refers to um a, a death and it's about um uh the the lamb dying instead of um the household and we know that because of the kind of proportionality that um a lamb uh, if depending on the size of your household, um, you need to you know get the next door neighbours in as well as if you've got a big lamb and and then you all eat it. So there's a sense in which that lamb covers a whole chunk of people uh, in a kind of representative um, proportional way. The right size of leg of lamb, depending on how many people you're having for Sunday lunch, it's that kind of exact one to one. Yeah, yeah, and to match this sort of the penalty that fell on them to against the penalty that should have fallen on us basically so he doesn't say to mark out your houses why don't you shear the lamb um, and put some of the wool on the doorposts he said kill the lamb but some of the blood on the doorposts yeah. um, and i think when it comes to the the festival the consecration of the first one we're a bit i was a bit confused when i first studied this years ago that there's kind of three festivals that all belong together so there's a passover um lamb's blood race lamb for dinner there's the unleavened bread because they have to leave Egypt in a hurry and there's not enough time for the bread to rise and they commemorate that with unleavened bread. And then there's the feast of the redemption of the firstborn. Um, and unlike the other two, the other two happen once a year, particularly time of the calendar, whereas the redemption of the firstborn happens whenever an eldest son is born. So your first male child or your first animal um, that comes from your cows or whatever, um, or donkey. And we're told in Exodus 13 verse 12, um, because these these firstborn belong to the Lord, verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So the idea is that the, the life of the firstborn is forfeit to the Lord. Um, he owns it, he demands it in sacrifice, unless it's paid for or redeemed by a substitute. And there it really is a life for a life redemption of the firstborn again as a way of understanding the passover so it, it seems there is this penal swap um a death swap at the lamb how does that how then does that help us understand the death of the lord jesus well it's it's not for nothing that when um john the baptist this is the first chapter of john's gospel when jesus is introduced to us the first thing his cousin John says is behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and at last in the Lord Jesus he has come to be the lamb the one who will take our place take the penalty which we deserve 
and um, it's a it's a glorious truth that we underline again and again that this is um, something that Jesus does that we couldn't have done for ourselves, and we'll, we'll forever, you know, praise Him for it. And John's Gospel makes a huge deal of the fact that Jesus dies at the Passover time. So as we come to chapter eighteen, chapter nineteen, you get this countdown three days before the Passover, and the on the night when the Passover lambs were sacrificed. And so Jesus dies as the lamb at exactly the right time that the lambs die. And even then, the soldier and the spear. Yeah, that's right. So um, I think the other three Gospels, as immediately Jesus dies, you get the the camera pans to the other side of the um, of Jerusalem and you see the, the curtain tear. And it, the whole point is that there's um, the access through the temple at the point of Jesus' death. In John's Gospel, it's a different picture, which is that blood and water, the centurion puts the spear up um, and out of Jesus comes blood and water. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, and John makes the point that they didn't break his bones. So to verify, I mean, I think in crucifixion, it's rather grim, isn't it? But the way you get someone to die quicker is by breaking their legs because it causes hemorrhage or exhaustion or suffocation or whatever there's medics debate about exactly why but if you kill if you break the legs of a crucified man they die faster and so they're trying to hasten the death of the three men on the cross but with Jesus they don't have to because he's already dead and John makes this big point this was to fulfill the scripture they will not break any of his bones which is one of the scriptures about the Passover lamb it mustn't have any of its bones broken so in all these different ways Jesus is the fulfillment of this um, so, and I think this is probably the thing that evangelicals rightly celebrate often. You know, Jesus died in our place so that his blood would shelter us. So that I, I think on, you know, on that night, as you go to bed on Passover night, there's only one question that really matters, which is, are we sheltering under the blood of the lamb? And you can imagine the firstborn son in particular checks the mum and dad have put a lot of blood on the door. And for, that's, of course, true of each one of us. As we die, not knowing when the day of judgment comes, the one thing that really counts is, am I sheltering under the Lamb's blood, under the, the blood of Jesus? So it's wonderful. It's familiar, probably, for evangelicals, that there's something different about this plague. But what actually is not different about it? What's the same as the other nine plagues? Yes, yeah, so in common with all the others, that um, Pharaoh takes a beating. So it's not just this substitution idea but there's the um destruct or the um punishment on the enemy of god and and pharaoh um seems to represent uh sort of uh god's ultimate enemy the devil and we've seen that earlier in in exodus that um he's the one who is standing against god's um redemption purposes god god's made promises to abraham about you know the people multiplying this is and carried on from Genesis 1 this is God's creation plan that is going to be accomplished in redemption and Pharaoh is the the enemy of God who's who's trying to kill the little children and and um the curses in chapter 1 um are the curses on in in Genesis 1 it's um curses on work and on childbirth and um they're the two um strategies that Pharaoh employees so he he's kind of stands in exodus as the enemy of of god's plans it's quite interesting because what you just said he is evil and he's against god but he's also sort of the agent of god's own curse on sin so it was god who in genesis 3 pronounced punishment on 
work, you know, the, your work will become toil, um, and on childbearing in bitter pain, you'll you'll bring forth children. So, like Satan is kind of harnessing God's own judgment against humanity and wielding it as a weapon. And I suppose we in the New Testament we learn that about death itself, as in the death penalty wasn't Satan's idea; it was God's idea. But in Hebrews chapter two, we discover that Satan is then wields death as a weapon of terror over people. So he he kind of grabs God's weapons or the weapons of God's judgments. Or another one, the accusation. I mean, Satan's name means the accuser, but he accuses people who are actually are guilty before God. So he he's sort of piggybacking on God's justice and then seizing the weapons for his own ends. So Pharaoh's kind of a well he is an evil one but he's an evil one who also represents the consequences of the fall and he's defeated at this plague yeah and that's that's something that is a wonderful truth that gets picked up about what jesus accomplishes at the cross as well so there's many facets of what he accomplishes and one of them is he defeats the enemy who um has enslaved us um for us um uh, Jesus comes uh, to to um, to beat up the strong man so that he can release those who have been enslaved to him. And um, in, in various places, we're seeing that um, in Colossians, um, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. So we were trapped under uh, Satan's rule, um, partly through accusation uh, in Colossians two. And then when Jesus died, um, uh, Satan got a beating. So, um, you know, John 12 now is um, the ruler of this world cast out. He, he, um, he lost at that moment and he got beaten up and um, that meant that we could be released into Jesus' care. We think less about this, don't we? Well, we do, but I think Christians do as a whole. The fact that you can only... We, we think about salvation from judgment, which is what the Lamb's blood achieved rescued from the angel of death but we are slower to think about salvation through judgment by which i mean the only way that pharaoh is going to be persuaded to let people go is if a mighty hand compels him to i always often think of the of auschwitz you know when the when the allied forces are coming to liberate a concentration camp and you can't just say to the commandant excuse me please would you mind letting these people go because they'll say no so you, you need a assault rifle to liberate people from a tyrant and by shooting the commandant and by blowing up the guard post then you liberate people and the bible's not squeamish about that like again and again god achieves his liberation through judgment coming on the tyrant you know david against the philistines or gideon against the midianites or hezekiah against the assyrians or um, and god defeats the evil foreign army by might and strength to release them and we we see that here yeah. How would how would we put the two together then? So I guess God's people are saved from Pharaoh by a plague, and then God's people are saved from the plague by the Lamb. So it's a sort of double salvation, saved from Pharaoh and saved from God. Um, why do the two go together? Because I mean, they they seem like intuitively quite different things. I'm saved from my sin before God, and I'm saved from the devil, who's my enemy. Why are they? together in one event in the bible history yeah i've i'd be interested in, in your reflections i guess in in terms of systematically in the new testament two of the ways um the devil's um 
mil- uh, weapons are taken away are because accusation is taken away. So he's he he stands over Andrew Latimer and says, "This one deserves judgment." And after the cross, um, the answer is yes, and that judgment's been taken. So the the devil's uh, accusation is gone. But also, well, he, so he hasn't stopped accusing, but it's all bluff now because yeah. his accusation has no teeth. The, the judge has thrown it out and says that that um, accusation has been settled. Um, and then second, um, the the great lie has been exposed. So the serpent deals in lies, and um, he um, he's kept us kept humanity um, captive through the lie that God is a, a sport, sport, etc. And now the the truth has been revealed at the cross of what kind of a God we have. And so he he's left looking stupid, and, and the lie is exposed. Mm. So I guess if Satan's weapons are God's judgment, when God's judgment's gone, Satan's weapons have gone, and it's a we're spared from God's judgment, and Satan's got nothing left apart from lies and threats. Um, so this wonderful, amazing act of salvation, which in so many ways picks up pictures the cross to come, and in the different facets of salvation that are to come in in the Lord Jesus that our Passover lamb but as we've mentioned already the other really distinctive thing about these chapters is that the genre changes from narrative describing one night in history 3,400 years or so ago to describing an annual event in Israel's history that they were supposed to do I mean they didn't actually quite do it every year did they because in the Old Testament you keep finding people suddenly remembering like I think Josiah suddenly discovers hang on a minute we're supposed to be celebrating Passovers and he reinstates it and then they go into exile and then Ezra comes back and suddenly realizes they're meant to be doing Passovers but largely through their history well not largely largely they don't do it probably but at the points that they're actually paying attention to the Bible they're meant to do this regularly rather than just once um why is that well I think this is really significant and and it's I guess um easier for us to imagine um, because we have the uh, fulfilment of it in the Lord's Supper, but it's um, the, here is a nation whose identity is going to be built around one event. So for us, with the Lord's Supper, we don't we're not commanded to gather and remember Jesus' birth or his teaching or his resurrection in the same way that we're called to take bread and wine and uh, have a ritual um, remembrance of his death. This is to be the moment that we're to um, build our identity on um, and I love the way it's um, it, it, he kind of messes with the calendar this month uh, shall be for you the beginning of months and and you can imagine the shock of that you um, like if Putin decided uh, from the moment of my reign that is year zero we would think oh wow this is a massive statement about how what history is about um, but this is what happens here is that history restarts or the year restarts and this is the if you're American this is the 4th of July this is um, who are we we are the people who celebrate Independence Day on this day Um, and we um, yeah Andrew do you you want to talk us through the the way what happened to those people then becomes an us moment I I love this and I think this is new to me I think you pointed it out to me this year that it's and we rightly describe it as a memorial, but it's more than just a sort of knock it, not in the handkerchief. 
because you could if it's just uh, to remember you could just say please read Exodus chapter 12 once a year and you could just read it in words but by having this actual meal the truth of the words becomes part of your identity and it actually happens three times you get this question so the first one is in um, chapter 12 verse 25 25 26 when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as his promise you shall keep this service and when your children say to you what do you mean by this service you shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses now this is in the future it's when you enter the promised land in fact only two people are in um, are actually there so Joshua and Caleb are there only two make it through but um, this next generation says this was the sacrifice when we were spared and then it comes again in the festival of the, the first one so in chapter 13 verse 5 when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hittites, Jebusites that he swore to your fathers to give you the land of flowing with milk and honey you shall keep this service so again it's the future generation it's when they've entered the land verse 8 you shall tell your son on that day it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt now this is really extraordinary because of course none of the people apart from Joshua and Caleb did come out of Egypt but the whole generation saying this is what happened to us so it's a kind of meal that connects you to the first time it was the first meal when the angel of death passed over but annually you you kind of remember it and you identify with it and I, I guess that's exactly what happens in the Lord's Supper isn't it there was there was one particular meal on a Thursday night when the Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body and the next day he died and he doesn't need to die again it happened once once for all but as this meal is repeated future generations identify themselves with that event and say this is what happened when the lord saved me but you can actually almost take the verses of, of exodus 12 and 13 and transpose them with instead of a lamb instead of the lord jesus and then you get almost exactly the liturgy for the lord's supper and and this is so this sort of logic is so fundamental for god's people sometimes churches get caught in the trap of you know what is god doing in our generation or what has god done in my life and we have to come up with our own little testimonies of some things that have happened here and god wants all our testimonies to be the same we were brought out of egypt and we have it's a it's a uniting corporate thing and it's an assuring thing that we all have the same story and we don't have to kind of think of a new thing that God is doing each decade. Um, we're, we're all united in this. And just what just as we close, one final thing that jumps out in the memorial is that they're to take um, bread and mix it with disgusting bitter herbs <laughs> i always thought this meant rosemary with your roast lamb but you have more insight into it than that well it, it gets picked up again in deuteronomy i think chapter 16 verse 1 that it's called the bread of affliction and the whole point of it is you want to spit out of your mouth because it reminds you of the affliction that you experienced when you were slaves and so part of christian discipleship isn't simply enjoying the lamb and reminding ourselves oh isn't it great to belong and to be sheltered under the lamb but part of Christian discipleship is saying, and, and wasn't it disgusting? Wasn't it terrible when we, before that, uh, before we came to belong to Jesus? And, and the New Testament does this all the time in Ephesians. This is what you were. This is what you are. This is what you were. This is what you are. And part of how we, um, uh, what goes wrong with the Israelites is they keep saying, oh, wasn't it brilliant back in Egypt? And, and that's our danger as well. 
Um, but instead we're meant to have the bread of affliction and we're meant to rehearse in our minds what a terrible thing it would be to be outside of Christ. I was trying to think how we should finish today's po- podcast on such amazing things. I, I thought I'd just read Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, This cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But way to that man by whom he's betrayed. Thank you for listening to Grace Pod. For more information about Grace Church Greenwich, visit www.greenwich.church.